If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, Thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today I have with me Eric Liget. He has created the program Fathers with Voices and he did this in the summer of 1996 after a childhood friend of his was experiencing difficulties within the family court system. His friend did not receive the proper assistance regarding maintaining a relationship with his child and unfortunately he decided to walk away to avoid causing any trouble and to not have to deal with the court system anymore. Leggett asked himself how many men were forced to make a similar decision and how many programs in New York could assist someone like that. To his surprise, many fathers were also having the same difficulty navigating the court system, and he is now the co-founder of Good Fatherhood Forever. Now, during this time, Mr. Leggett was also dealing with his own custody battle with his own daughter and had to go through an entire visitation case, which he actually ended up winning full custody of his daughter, which is an amazing feat in today's world with um, men and and mothers and fathers. Uh, Usually mothers are the ones that receive that. And uh, through that, he also wrote a book that is called The Ten Warning Signs, Is Your Date a Deadbeat or Deadly? And we will definitely get into that book and the 10 behaviors, characteristics, and statements that single women should pay attention to while dating so everybody can avoid having to deal with the court systems and the family court systems and not having to put their child through that. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Appreciate it. Of course. I'm glad to have you. Um, So let's go back a little bit. Let's start with your childhood. What was it like growing up for you that kind of middle school, high school age, you know, really where your personality and your traits really start to form? Well, I went through a lot of being made fun of um, because of my very fair skin complexion. I've I've, uh, since grown, you know, become a little darker, but back then I was very fair skin with reddish blonde hair. So I went through a lot of um, being made fun of because of the way I looked. That was pretty much from elementary school t- until about my sophomore year in high school. And my mother, she went through something similar too, because my mother was, you know, fair skinned and she had the reddish blonde hair. And I remember my mother saying to me, until you accept yourself, no one else will. And I would ask her questions like, you know, because my brother, my older brother was brown skinned and I would ask her questions like, you know, why did he come out so perfect? And I came out so ugly. And then the summer of my sophomore year, I, I grew from five foot five to five eleven in two months. <laughs> and God gives you what you need at the right time. And the height gave me confidence. And then that's when I started to really kind of you know, one day I just woke up and said, Eric, you know what? You're different. Your hair is brown. You're light skinned. You're, you know, your eyes is a certain color, whatever. 
accept yourself fully and just go on with your life. And then that's when my life began to really, really change. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think that it's, it's really awesome when one parents can have that impact on their kids, you know, cause all of us were kids, you know, and right. I don't have kids yet, but you have kids and you know right. that all of them are like, Oh, whatever you say doesn't matter. Right. It, it doesn't actually, you know, they could, you could say whatever you want, but they'd have to hear it from someone else to believe it to be true. Right. And right. Um, so I think it's amazing that, you know, your mom was able to just keep pushing and, and pushing right. until you, you got it and you understood right. that, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like. Right. And mm-hmm. something else that I also found interesting um, in today's society with, you know, and I, I don't really get into politics or anything like that. It's just something that struck me as interesting that, you know, being, um, you know, an African-American and thinking my brother came out perfect and he has got dark skin and, you know, but in today's society, like nobody with dark skin thinks that they're perfect. Right. And, right. and I think that's, it, it just struck me as really awesome that like you had that yeah. vision of, you know, mm-hmm. he's amazing even with dark skin. Right. Right. My mom was um, very instrumental in um, building my self-esteem she really focused on those things that I did well, like writing and reading. Um, my dad came from the musical side. My dad bought me my first instrument and he was the one that he saw that level of talent in me. So you had two parents that saw two different things in one child and made sure that that, that child had what he needed. And being able to do those things that people in my neighborhood couldn't do, like I taught myself how to play the bass guitar and the drums and the keyboards, people in my neighborhood couldn't do that. So that was my, I gotcha, you know, type of moment, you know. So they were very instrumental in in helping me through that, you know, navigate that that difficult childhood to adolescent, you know, preteen stage of my life. That's awesome. I think that that's really amazing, especially the work that you're in now, you know, where you Mm -hmm. see, you know, one parent or the other stepping out or leaving and, you know, not wanting to have a role in their child's life. It's, you know, do you kind of feel like an anomaly that you had both parents there loving you or do you see both sides of it? Well, I'm a little bit older than you. I grew up in a community in Brooklyn, New York, where two parent family was kind of the norm in Brooklyn, New York during that time, during the 70s and 80s. My mom was the only stay-at-home mom. But in my neighborhood, you know, I would say the majority of my friends came from two-parent homes. So, you know, it it was the norm back then. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it's definitely uh, changed. Oh, it's not the same now. No. (laughs) Definitely not. So, you got your confidence in high school, you know, in the middle of high school and that, you know, you were able to kind of realize that it didn't matter, you know, your hair color, your eye color, your skin color, as long as you were you, it mm-hmm. you know, it would be easier for other people to accept you. So did that kind of then shape 
you're like, did you, uh, you know, go into college or not going to college or, you know, kind of your career path prior to where you're at now? Well, it did shape me and, and growing up in my household, my household was, a I watched two, two people invest a lot in people. My, my parents have been foster parents for over 40 years. I have two adoptive brothers. When Facebook became very, very popular, so many people reached out to my mom to say, you know, thank you for doing this or thank you for doing that. So I, I grew up, I grew up seeing examples of investing in people. And and I think what it did for me, because I went through so much with, with people not accepting me without even getting to know me. It, it created a level of empathy in me. So I'm not surprised that I'm I'm doing the type of work that I'm doing right now, because in order to do human services, you have to have the characteristics that fits under the guidelines of serving, being empathetic, non-judgmental, being sympathetic, being encouraging, giving a dose of reality when, when needed. You know, you have to have those, those those type of characteristics in order to connect to people. So that's where I would say those characteristics and those things that I went through, you know, at a younger age, I, I'm not surprised to where I'm at right now. I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I 100% agree that, you know, you have to have that. My husband's military. We're both former police officers. So we definitely understand that mindset of wanting to serve. And then, you know, obviously with the nonprofit and, and turning that right. into, to what we're doing now. Right. I, I definitely agree with that. So when, you know, when you were 18, did you know exactly what you wanted to do or what was that decision like or that moment in time like for you? Absolutely not. 18, <laughs> I had no clue. The only thing I I was really into was music. I was in college and I wanted to be the next Teddy Riley. <laughs> I wanted to be a great music producer. I was really good at what I was doing. I was even offered a record contract a producer but I turned it down which was is another story in itself I, I didn't really know I went to I went to college for two years then I took three years off to work and then I went back to school at 23 and then that's when I realized that I wanted to do something in the human services field so I really didn't really find myself till around 23 yeah till I was 23 years old that's not, you know, unusual at all. Even in this day and age, there are 25-year-olds that are having, you know, these midlife crises right. because they were forced to pick a career at 18 when, when's the last time any 18-year-old knew what they wanted to do with their life, you know? It's, it's not many. It's not many. And even with today, with the change in climate in the economy, there are people, you know, as old as 40, around my age, that are making career change. I'm in transition right now, to be honest with you. I left teaching. So I'm in transition right now and and just, you know, not so much figuring out. I know what I want to do, 
it's just kind of scary because it's more aren't you so i have to have two or three backup plans instead of just relying on one so it's it's um it's just not unusual it's not yeah and you know i've had this conversation with a few people on my on my show before of you know is is college at 18 the right decision should we be you know telling kids to go to college and and be forcing this on them or kind of just let them you know maybe create programs that just allow them to explore different options for the first couple years of college versus just having to go straight into a career right right right. and i've had this discussion with my daughter my daughter wants to do wants to be a real estate agent so when you're a real estate agent you really don't need a college degree but she does want to take business courses and, and that's fine college is not for everybody it's not and it doesn't mean that they're a lower uh, in in intelligence or anything it it just doesn't fit for everybody you know and there's nothing wrong with that you know so i i agree with that i agree with you that teenagers should be given more options other than college college is not the end all be all it's not yeah no uh i definitely agree mm-hmm. yeah I went to college, got a four-year degree in criminal justice, and I'm not doing anything with it, <laughs> you know. Well, and I mean, I, no, and I and I I, cho- I totally understand. I mean, I love masters, the masters program. I love that. I mean, I almost got emotional when I graduated because I I just love the learning. I'm an avid reader. So, and, and when you take your master's courses, you're, you're basically reading and, and, and doing, you know, these different types of, not reports, but is it reports? Yeah. So that falls right into my, my lane. So I, I enjoyed master's degree, the master's degree program, because it was so much relevant knowledge. I got to really understand what makes a good teacher and what makes an ineffective teacher, what makes a great leader, what makes a bad leader. That's great stuff to learn when you're an, an educator. So the, the, the four year degree, uh, I mean, that, that was okay. The master's program was, was, was the best. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it's very, it's very niche down. So it's exactly right. what you want to learn, not, you know, all these random things that they force right. you to learn. So I definitely right. agree with that. So at 23, you went back to college. What did you go get your degree in? Sociology. Okay. Sociology. Mm-hmm. And um, you said that you, so you're transitioning from being a teacher. How did all of that, you know, let, like, let's go into your, your, your mid twenties, late twenties. What, um, what was that part of your life like? And how, did you become a teacher then? Or was that later on in life? Well, that was later on. That was just recently over the last 10 years. Once I graduated with my BA in sociology, I went straight to work in human services at Foster, very, you know, prominent foster care agency in Brooklyn, New York. And I loved it. I really did. I enjoyed it. It's weird because (laughs) it's weird because with, with foster care, it can be very, very stressful because there's things always going on. And I remember my coworker, a coworker said, why is it that you always look so calm 
and we're so frazzled, it's because I perform better in chaos. <laughs> I just do. I mean, if it's a lot going on, once I get a handle on the schedule, I'm fine. Okay. I just work better that way. I mean, it, it just, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just wired that way. So I loved it. And I did that for about four years. And then I actually got a job um, working at a very prominent fatherhood program that was um, one of the first in, in Harlem, New York City. It was a young fatherhood program. And it was a wonderful program. We actually moved to a building on 125th Street. We were, we were one floor below Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton left office, he had an office in our building. And the day that he came downstairs to meet our program, I was out because I had to take my daughter. <laughs> I had to take my daughter to a doctor's appointment. I come back and I see all these pictures of of people with Bill Clinton on walls and stuff. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me, you know? And because we always was there because they would close down certain elevators. There were certain elevators that we couldn't, we was like, oh, okay, Bill is here today. <laughs> we, can't, we can't take this elevator, you know, that type of thing. And the one day that I was not there, he comes downstairs introduces himself to everybody at the program and I'm not there. So <laughs> it is what it is, man. <laughs> I see you're definitely over it though. You, you got no, yeah, <laughs> no hard feelings about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm over it. Back then I was a mess, but I, I'm over it now. I'm over it. I'm over awesome. It. So is that kind of what led you into knowing your friend and knowing the way that the court system works, um, did that kind of spur the movement that you've got going on? Or was that again, later on in life? Mm -mm. No, that happened in 1996. What I was just sharing with you that happened around the year 2000. So I had kind of, we're going, you know, flip-flopping, but with my friend, yeah, it was just very strange because it was, he didn't tell me about it. It was his fiance. And I grew up with both of them. And, and she just was very, she was destroyed because she felt like, you know, they wanted to get married, but the stress of him not being able to see his son was taking a toll on, on the relationship. So when, when people share things with me, I always, I start to think, and I started thinking, well, how many men were going through this? And then the next thing you know, I, I developed what, I, what you call a, a needs assessment questionnaire. And what I did was I distributed amongst people in my neighborhood just to find out, well, if I did, is a program needed for men that's dealing with this? And the response was overwhelming. So then I was part of, of some type of, um, it was like a, like a, like a, a, business type of course that last, lasted for about six weeks for people who had ideas for programs and businesses. And then that's where I was able to learn how to put together a mission statement and objectives and goals. And that's where, you know, Fathers with Voices was born. It was born there. 
Mm -hmm. I love it. I think that it's so important to have that around. I know several men who are fighting that system right now, trying to get just, you know, Mm -hmm. partial custody, you know, half and half. And it's, you know, it boggles my mind that women will sit there and, you know, I'm a woman, you know, I know that they're not all like this, but you know, you have some women out there that will just hound men for money, but then will refuse them them to see their kids. And Mm -hmm. you can't have it both ways. You can't sit there and, you know, expect them to participate from a distance. If you want their lives in one way, you have to accept the other ways that they want to be in their life. So I think that it's extremely important um, with what you're doing. Right. Right. So, you know, the joke is I I became Fathers with Voices first client. (laughs) My daughter was two years old and two months after the inception of Fathers with Voices, I had to go to court and advocate for my daughter. And it was by far even to this day, the most painful experience I've ever endured. But it was a great learning experience. And my mom, again, said, Eric, take a journal of what you're doing, what you're going through. And I did. And I took note of all the things that I did to make the court system look at me in a more favorable light. And that, you know, that included, you know, coming to all the court cases, being dressed appropriately, not losing my temper in the face of allegations. And these were all the things that I was complimented on by the judge. It was that type of information that I went ahead and that became the the foundation of false with voices as far as information. And I just passed that along to other men that was about to become part of the court system. And um, it's worked out. I've, I've been fortunate enough to help a lot of men obtain their visitation rights and joint custody and joint legal custody and custody of their children. So it's been pretty awesome. It has. I love that. I think that, you know, it's, it's sad in one sense that, you know, a mom can walk into court in a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, get hysterical and upset and make all these false allegations and it mm-hmm. doesn't matter, right? They can still get custody, but, you know, mm-hmm. men have to be on their absolute best behavior, dress yeah. to the nines and, you know, not have a, a lick of emotion going right. through, you know, something that is very emotional, right? That's your, that's your kid that, and especially, you know, if you've been in their life prior or, mm-hmm. or anything, you know, you're not just, you know, coming in because, Maybe you just found out you had a kid and it's, you know, it's just a very emotional time. And to expect, you know, that's that toxic masculinity that we've got going on in this society of you're not allowed to show emotion as a man. You're not allowed to do all of this stuff as a man. You've got to be, you know, that strong willed, heartless, basically uh, person. And so, you know, I'm glad that there's the program helping men navigate through Mm-hmm. this society but it's also disheartening that it's even needed it is it is and and you mentioned that you you know a couple of men please you can refer them to me and i could see what i could do to help them 
Because what I realized with for men to be successful in the court system, it's you're reprogramming the man's mind to understand that first, you have to approach it like Jermaine Jackson's only musical hit in his life. Don't take it personal. Okay. That was before your time. Okay. You can't take it personal. It is a court system that is motivated by money. Okay. If they made the sides even for both people, judges are not going to make any money. Referees are not going to make any money. Law guardians are not going to make any money. The district attorneys are not going to make any money. They have to create an uneven system to keep that machine going. So my job is to teach men how to offset that through their behavior and through their preparation. And the format has worked. I have not deviated from my format for the past 20 years. I'm not one of those type of people that, okay, let's try something new. You know, that's why I left education because that's what they do. They keep trying these different things on these kids like they're robots instead of just sticking to one thing and letting their mind become accustomed and grasp that and then let them go on. No, they keep changing. They keep changing. They keep, no. That's why I didn't fit in the education, okay? I stayed in one place because my thing was, okay, I accomplished getting high standardized test scores. Why are you telling me to change something? When did, I mean, when did it make sense to say, okay, you know, Mr. Leggett, keep doing what you're doing. I mean, those test scores are very high. No, they want you to try this particular teaching method and that teaching method and this process. No, uh-uh. I stay right where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to, feel free to refer them to me. That's fine. Definitely. You know, I think it's, again, I, I applaud what you're doing and I think that it's, it is much needed. You know, luckily the few that I know, you know, their, their stuff is, is completed um, and they were awarded full custody of their kids. Really? Um, yeah. And, and there's that, but of course, you know, always, if I come across anybody, right. I, I think it's always needed. And, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of resources out there for men who want to actually get full custody of their kids. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O-thriving-A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.